Father, having been reminded of your otherness, your holiness, we are also reminded that you are not distant or, or far from us because as we prepare to open your word and read of Jesus, we recognize that uh, the eternal God clothed himself in flesh, the, the, the God who is, who is superlative in his holiness clothed himself in flesh to redeem us and to make us fit for the purpose for which we were created, which is to cry holy to you for all of eternity. And so, Father, now as we dive into your word to, to see uh, the, the nearness of God in Jesus, uh, we pray that we will be encouraged and challenged uh, to live differently in light of it. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. You be seated. And as you're seated, if you would please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, verse 24. Luke chapter 3, verse 24. Several of us are leaving for uh, Minneapolis for a conference right after church. And so we're going to be wearing what we're wearing uh, to go. And uh, we'll be getting out to eat dinner somewhere around Des Moines uh, right about the time the game ends. So I'll be wearing this in some random restaurant in Des Moines, Iowa when the game ends, and I don't want people to be mean to me. So uh, we, need, we need people to win. We need the Chiefs to win so that I am, I am not treated uh, terribly by strangers at a McDonald's in Des Moines later on this afternoon. Uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 24, or Luke 3, verse 24. Each week when we write sermons, the last thing and frequently the hardest thing uh, that we do is come up with a title. Now, let me let you in on a secret. We don't come up with a title expecting that you will remember it, uh, frankly, after the slide shows up. Uh, we, don't, we don't pick titles for you. We pick titles for us. We pick titles for us because uh, titles help us get started with the message itself. It serves as, as kind of a prompt for us to actually get into the content of the message. But here's the deal. Uh, we wrote this message the week of Christmas, which means that it, it was a short week, which means that we were all very tired like the rest of the world, and we were all distracted like the rest of the world. And so this is the best that we could come up with. Uh, the title of today's message is The Part No One Reads. And the reason that we called today's message The Part That No One Reads is because we come to a genealogy. Uh, and, and let's just be honest, uh, no one, no one reads a genealogy in the Bible. Now, I, I do think that we at times try, but when we do, we typically stop for the very same reasons that Pastor Micah stopped. He's our Ridgeview campus pastor. He's on the teaching team. And when we were working on this last month, he said, well, I'm, I'm going to read the whole thing to the Ridgeview campus, all 77 names. And I said, really? Do you want to, you, why don't you give it a shot right here? He made it three verses in. He said, yeah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> the names are hard to read, and they are hard to pronounce. That's one reason that we typically don't read genealogies when we encounter them while reading through the Bible. The other reason uh, that we typically skip over them is, frankly, we just don't know what to do with them. And so because we don't know what to do with them, uh, we begin to use our imagination in really bad ways and treat them as some kind of Bible code that needs to be unlocked, and we end up doing something really weird with them. 
Uh, in fact, one of the weirdest things that has ever been done with a genealogy is a book that was all the rage about 25 years ago, a book called The Prayer of Jabez. Now, if that was your favorite book, I'm sorry. It's one of the worst examples that I can think of of misusing Scripture, in particular a genealogy. Uh, when, when you come up with an entire book about a man who's mentioned once in two obscure verses from the Old Testament, you've done more with the genealogy than what you should. So because they are hard to read and because we don't know what to do with them, genealogies are a part of the Bible that no one reads. So what I want to do this morning is to spend a little bit of time trying to take the mystery out of them and then show you what Luke is doing by including it, because he did include it for a purpose, a purpose that can benefit us, and we'll get to that purpose. But first, let's think about genealogies. The first thing you have to do is you need to understand that biblical genealogies aren't written so that you can know who was so-and-so's grandpa or great-grandpa. They are always written to frame a person or an institution in the case of the Jewish monarchy, the Jewish kings, or a nation, in, in the case of the nation of Israel, against the backdrop of history for a rhetorical purpose. In other words, a message that I'm communicating. So let me say that again. Genealogies in the Bible are written to frame persons, institutions, or nations against the backdrop of history for a rhetorical purpose, uh, to, to complete the message of the author. And that's going to mean a couple of different things. First, it's important to understand it means they will be highly stylized. They will be purposely arranged to communicate the author's message. And so as a result, uh, you will uh, get what may seem great liberties taken with the family records that we, in a modern sense, would not do. For instance, the two genealogies of Jesus that are included, included in the New Testament are really wildly different. But there was a different purpose for including them. Matthew was written to a Jewish audience to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, and his genealogy was written to demonstrate that he was of the royal lineage of David and therefore fulfilled the biblical requirement of being the Messiah. So he focuses on uh, who would have been the legal heir to the throne in each generation from David to Jesus. Luke's focus is more of an actual family lineage, although, again, not in the modern sense like ours is. In other words, he, he's more focused on who was so-and-so's grandpa or great-grandpa. So there are different names in the family records of Jesus in the two different genealogies that are included in the New Testament. Another stylistic aspect of genealogies is how they are arranged. For instance, Matthew arranges his genealogy into three sets of 14 generations from Abraham to Jesus with David falling in the exact middle, again to support his point that Jesus was a son of David. Luke arranges his genealogy in 11 sets of seven from Jesus all the way back to Adam with each set bracketed by someone whose name we would recognize, someone whose name was included in the Bible. And he does this to support his point for including the genealogy, which we'll get to in just a minute. So they weren't written to explain the modern notion of a genealogy. I mean, I'm a 23andMe guy. I, I, you know, I, I spit in the tube and 
the whole nine yards. And, and I get these, these notifications on my 23andMe app all the time that I've got new relatives. I don't have new relatives. I mean, that's, I, mean I have people whose DNA merged with mine somewhere back in, in the great beyond. But we can get the family tree and we can say here, 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 and we know how many generations. That's not the purpose of a biblical genealogy. They were written to frame a person, in this case Jesus, against the backdrop of history for a rhetorical purpose. So what was Luke's rhetorical purpose? What is his message that including the genealogy helps meet? Well, it wasn't to try to help us do a background study on the individual names that it includes. It was written to focus on Jesus in particular in three different ways. And here's the first one. It was provided to us to show us that Jesus is man. Jesus is man. And this serves a very specific theological purpose. Uh, the name, if you're reading through this, and maybe you've already glanced at it, that really garners the most attention for a purpose in the genealogy of Jesus is the name Adam. So let's look at Adam's significance. And to do that, I'm going to show you a verse on the screen, Romans 5.12. Let's look at it together. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, Adam's name is obviously not mentioned there, but there's no doubt that Adam is the one man to whom Paul, who wrote Romans, is referring. And concerning Adam, Paul makes a series of statements that are important for our genealogy in Luke. All right? The first is that he says, sin entered the world through Adam, which reveals a couple of things. First, it reveals that Paul considered Adam to be a real historical person, a real person who really lived. How do we know that? Because in the book of Romans, Paul is going to great lengths to demonstrate that sin is a real thing which has real repercussions in the real world, in the lives of real people. He would not be saying that this thing which is so real and so pervasive and has so many impacts on what it means to be human entered into the human race through a mythological person. When Paul is speaking of this one man here, he is saying that sin entered the world through Adam who was a real man. And then he says that death entered the world through Adam's sin. And he's going to underscore what this means in Romans 6. Death is a, physically is a sign of a spiritual reality, a separation from God. And so Paul is saying that physical death came to the human race through Adam, and he's also saying that this physical death is a sign of our spiritual death from sin. And then he says that this death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, it's, it's hard to understand exactly what he means by all of this other than to say that Paul understood that all of humanity who has ever lived has in some way been caught up into Adam's sin. 
Now, there's all kinds of rabbit trails that we can track here about when we become culpable for our sin and when we fall under God's judgment, but that's for another sermon. That's for another day. Paul's main point here is that we are all swept up in our ancestor Adam's sin, and we confirm that connection to him by actually sinning. Now, there's a theological term for this. It's a term I've shared with you before, but frankly, you can't remember what I preached two weeks ago, so this will seem like completely new information for everybody in the room. Here's the term. The term is federal headship. Adam, the first man, served as the the head of the, the human party to the first covenant between man and God, a, a covenant of works. God makes an agreement with Adam that if Adam will obey God, Eden would be his in exchange. It would never end. Had Adam maintained his obedience, then that blessedness would have been passed to all of humanity. But because of his disobedience, because he was tempted with Eve and sin, his curse has been transferred to us instead. And so theologically, the only consistent way for this curse to be addressed would be for God to enact a new covenant and to provide a new representative to serve as head for humanity, one whose obedience would transmit the righteousness that Adam's disobedience could never provide. And so back to the genealogy. I know we had to run around a little bit there, but back to the genealogy. The last name of humanity that is mentioned in the genealogy at the end of Luke chapter 3 is the name Adam. Adam who was tempted and Adam who sinned and Adam whose curse was was transferred to all of us. I want you I want you to see what Luke now includes. Look at Luke 4:1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. Make sure you see this. Luke included his genealogy of Jesus in a weird spot. I mean, why didn't he include it after after Jesus was born? Why didn't he include it uh, as his first words, which is essentially what Matthew does in his gospel. Because the genealogy serves a rhetorical purpose. And here's what he's doing. He is showing us that all of mankind can trace their roots back to Adam, who sinned, and whose sin has visited on us a curse. And then immediately, he talks about the new representative for humanity who faced temptation and never sinned. So what he's doing is he's saying there has come one to all of us who has withstood the temptation of sin and can give us an inheritance of righteousness and not guilt. Luke was showing us that Jesus was man. Luke is showing us that Jesus is the second Adam. He is showing us that he is the man. Jesus is man. The genealogy also shows us that Jesus is God because his genealogy actually doesn't end with Adam. I mean, it's the last human mentioned. It's not the last person mentioned. The last person mentioned is, of course, God. But if you're thinking, and you should be, you should now ask me, well, uh, then doesn't that just mean that everyone who has a genealogy 
can trace their beginnings back to God, and therefore, wouldn't that make us all divine in some way? And if we are locked into the modern sense of family trees like we tend to be, that might be what you would conclude here. But as we've already seen, the purpose of the genealogy is to show our connection to Adam and how Jesus is going to reset Adam's curse on humanity with his obedience. So there's a whisper there of the divine aspects of Jesus' life when the family tree ends with God, the idea being that a new humanity is being created through him. So Jesus is man, Jesus is God. Here's the third thing, though, and really the, the, the real rhetorical purpose for the genealogy. Luke is showing us that Jesus is for all people, which is the underlying theme of his entire gospel. The, the, the thing that he is showing us is that Jesus is for the Jew as his family tree uh, traces its roots back through David all the way to Abraham. But he's also showing us that Jesus is for the Gentile as Jesus' family tree traces past Abraham into the time before there was even a Jewish people. But Jesus is for all people beyond just their ethnicity. The 77 names mentioned include those great and small, famous and infamous, known and anonymous. And if you could find out the life story of each and every one of them, you can't. But if you could, every one of us would find someone in the life story of Jesus with, with whom we could identify. Luke's point is that Jesus is the Savior for everyone. Of everyone who would ever come to him as Savior and Lord, Jesus is the Savior for everyone, not just a select group of ethnicity and not just a select group of, of people who have somehow merited favor before God. Everybody. Everybody can come to Jesus, and that is Luke's ultimate theme in his gospel. That's the reason he's always going to lean in to those who are on the margins and on the outside. That's the reason that women play a primary role in Luke's gospel, because in the world in which they live, women were on the margins. That's the reason that Gentiles play a primary role in Luke's gospel, because in Luke's world, Gentiles were on the margin. He is saying over and over in the gospel that Jesus is for everyone, and he builds his genealogy to prove just that. So let's spend some time in closing grasping the fullness of what that means. I want to show you two verses from Romans 5 now on your screen that are important for us. Romans 5, 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass, one sin, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, now speaking of Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Here's some simple theological math. One man plus one sin equals many sins. One man plus one righteous act, the death on a cross, makes many righteous. The point is that the grace offered through Christ 
is sufficient for every sin and for every sinner. That is Luke's point. And so God offers all of us, all of us, the chance to rewrite our ancestry. Here's the reason that I did the 23andMe thing. I'm getting to the stage in my life where I would like to know if there is some faulty wiring that might show itself up in some kind of disease propensity a little later down the road. Now, there's a lot of faulty wiring that's shown up already, all right? But I wanted to know that. But you know what? If I'd found out, and I didn't, none of that stuff exists, at least as far as the tests go. If I'd found out I had a, a genetic propensity to cancer or heart disease, I couldn't have done anything about it. I mean, I could go to the doctor, and I'm sure they love people coming in saying, look at my app. <laughs> Fix me. There wouldn't have been anything I could do about it. I want you to think of, of your spiritual history right now. I want you to think of the worst things that you know about yourself. And you'll say, well, I can't rewrite that. You're right. You can't. But Jesus can. That's why we have this. That's why we have this genealogy. To see that a new humanity is being created out of the one man Jesus and that everyone who comes to him for salvation can find in him a new story. And so let's, let's close by thinking how we can change our family tree. I want you to think of ACT, A-C-T, ACT. First, you have to acknowledge. What do you have to acknowledge? Something that is very, very hard for us. We have to acknowledge that there's literally nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Now, here's how most of us tend to think of ourselves. We tend to think of ourselves as basically good people who need a boost. And Jesus is our boost. So if I could add Jesus to all the goodness that is already here, all of the decentness that is already here, then I will have enough to merit salvation. But before you can have your family tree rewritten, before your personal history can be changed, you have to come to the realization that there is nothing that you can do that will merit your salvation, that will rewrite your story. You have, to, you have to acknowledge that. Then you have to confess that you're a sinner. But it's more than just saying, you know what, I've sinned. Everybody does that. I've never met anybody in my life, in my life, and I've been doing this almost, I've been in ministry almost 40 years. I've never met anybody in my life who says, well, I've never sinned. I mean, who wouldn't for? Everybody I've ever met, yeah, I've sinned. It's, so it's not just saying, yep, I'm a sinner. It's confessing guilt. Because I'm a sinner, I'm guilty before God and deserving of judgment. That's where you have to get. You have to get to a point where you say, I can't save myself acknowledge that, and then confess your guilt before God, which is the reason you can't save yourself. And then you come to the T, which is turn, 
which means that you turn from all that you have been to Jesus, not as your boost and not as your life coach, but as your king. We've already talked about this a lot as we've walked through uh, the, the book of Luke. Uh, the idea that Jesus is king, not life coach and not helper. He's king. And so in order to have this rewritten, your personal history rewritten, in order to reset your ancestry, what you have to do is you have to come to a point where you recognize that everything that I am led to all that. And in order for me to have that undone, I have to turn to Jesus as the ruler and king of my life. If you do not have Jesus as king, you do not have his salvation. This is what Luke is going to show us over and over again. doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you never sin. But it means that you set the course of your life based on to the best that you can figure it out, knowing you're going to screw it up each day. You're going to set the course of your life on Jesus' path, letting him rule and to guide you. Act. You have to acknowledge your inability to save yourself. You have to confess your guilt before God, which keeps you from being able to save yourself. And you have to turn to Jesus as your king. If you do that, then everything's new and everything's his. And so that's what I want us to think about as we close. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes, please?